Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 22nd, 2014. Tonight we're going to be presenting part six of our series on Martin Luther, presenting Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, written in 1543. I hope I don't belabor Martin Luther, but we're going to get into much better portions of his work towards the later half of this presentation. He, his arguments against the, the, the Jews leave room for improvement, and, and we have a lot to learn from Martin Luther, I believe. First, I'd like to say a couple of words um, about white nationalists. I, I um, listened to a podcast, and, and let me first introduce Sword Brethren. He's here with, with me once again to help present Hello. this topic. Oh, Brian. Thank you. Well, what do you think about a white nationalist that says that Indians have rights to? To what? I'm curious. Rights to do what? Or, or about, well, well, ostensibly to burn their, your, your, your wagons and rape your pioneer daughters. Well, what, well, what, what kind of nationalist is he then? That's, 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 that begs the question, what sort of nationalist is he? Right. That's exactly my sentiments. I, I heard a guy, and, and I'm kind of, I mean, I'm not surprised because this has happened before, but this guy has been, well, well he claims to have been listening to me for the last five years, and, and all of a sudden he's offered some white, some so-called white nationalists, and, and he's... Um, apparently supporting Indian rights and civil rights and the, the rights of nationalists of other races to have their fair share, too. I don't know. that This is the, the new face of white nationalism, I guess. David Duke started this crap. It, it's um, catering to the other races uh, against the, 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 um, the Zionists, not against the Jews, against the Zionists. It, it's a sickening trend when people feel they have to compromise in, in order to broaden the tent. That, that's been the sin of our race for uh, I don't know how many centuries now. Hmm. Well, well, I'll be expressing further, expressing further um, disappointment on, and, and, and opinion on this topic. I don't want to name any names tonight. Well, it begs the question, why are they trying to soften our message to make it palatable for people who aren't included in our message? Why do we care if Pakistanis approve of our message? Precisely. It's compromise, and they do it to gain popularity. This, I wouldn't be upset about it, but this clown says he's listened to me for five years and he considered me. He made public statements on, on certain um, comment sections on popular nationalist websites that he considered me his Christian identity pastor. I, I, I don't know if he wants to go calling me his Christian identity pastor and then turning into a nigger lover simply to try to discredit me. I, sometimes I think that might be the ploy. It, it's incredible. But that, that's, I'll, I'll be discussing this topic more in the near future. I think I'm going to do a program on clowns <laughs> Clowns who, who have tried to associate themselves with Christian identity and, and start naming names perhaps around the first or second week of April might be a good, might be a good time. 
it, it has to be done once in a while. We've often discussed so far in this series that in arguing against the Jews, Martin Luther took the Jewish lies about their past for granted. And for that reason, he believed that the Jews were the Israelites of the Old Testament. Then, to make matters worse, instead of addressing them on biblical grounds in order to refute their treachery, he devised his own sophistic arguments against them. That, that was a major theme of part five. Well, which you would unfortunately miss, Brian. He would have stood on firmer ground if he adhered to the scripture, since his sophistic arguments in our esteem only serve to land legitimacy to the Jewish claims, and, and we'll see more of that tonight in, in, in this segment. Furthermore, by accepting the idea that the Jews were Israel, Luther was forced to adopt a universalist position and actually argue against the scripture rather than argue against the Jews. Here we shall continue with our presentation of Luther's work with part three of On the Jews and Their Lives, written in 1543. In the previous parts of his thesis, Luther presents arguments against the Jews by attacking the pretense that they have a preferred status before, ground, before God on the grounds of their claims to nobility of birth and their adherence to the right of circumcision. He's actually arguing against the Bible and discrediting the Bible. He continues in that same manner here. Do you have any comments? Only that, you know, Luther can't be faulted for his mistakes, but I think the fact that he tried to use sophistry to squeeze the Jews into the Bible. I, I fault him for that. I think it's academically dishonest, and he should have just kept studying, and he, maybe he would have come to the proper conclusion. But it, it seems he, he put a lot of effort into this, squeezing the Jews into the Bible, but in the end, that's the easy route. Well, well yeah, you know, Luther, he was blind. I, I mean, Yahweh, God, designated the times of our awakening, and it's still not here. I mean, that, that there's a segment of white society that has had their eyes opened and have for the past 150 years. Hmm. However, that, that, that segment is small. We like to think that it's growing, and perhaps it is, but it's still small. It's still pretty much a drop in a bucket on a grand scale. Especially when you consider all the different levels of awakening. There's a lot of people that understand there's a, a Zionist problem, for instance, that wouldn't dare admit that the Zionist problem is really a Jewish problem. And, and then there are anti-Zionists who embrace Negroes, people like I just spoke about. They claim to be nationalists. That there are... Um, anti-Zionists that have basically accepted all of the Jewish paradigm concerning diversity and multiculturalism. They don't realize it, but they've already surrendered themselves to the Jews. So, so what's the point of being anti-Zionist? To save a few Palestinian kids? Saving a few Palestinian kids, you're probably costing the lives of a lot of uh, Americans or... or, or British. It doesn't really matter. 
Do, do you want to start with part three? All right. God truly honored them highly by circumcision, speaking to them above all other nations on earth and entrusting his word to them. And in order to preserve this word among them, he gave them a special country. He performed great wonders through them, ordained kings and government, and lavished profits upon them, who not only apprised them of the best things pertaining to the present, but also promised them the future Messiah, the Savior of the world. It was for his sake that God accorded them all of this, bidding them look for his coming to expect him confidently and without delay. For God did all of this solely for his sake. For his sake, Abraham was called, circumcision was instituted, and the people were thus exalted so that all the world might know from which people, from which country, at which time, yes, from which tribe, family, city, and person he would come lest he be reproached by devils and by men for coming from dark corner or from unknown ancestors. No, his ancestors had to be great patriarchs, excellent kings, and outstanding prophets who bear witness to him. And as an aside, you know, on Matthew chapter 1, do the Judeos ever ask why is Jesus' ancestry listed in such great detail? If, if we all came from two, you know, they all think we're from Adam and Eve, and ancestry doesn't matter, heritage doesn't matter. Why would the apostles spend so much time chronicling Jesus' ancestry? Well, well, there there are pertinent reasons for it. But Luther seems to be almost, uh, I don't know if he's, if he's being sarcastic here. I don't know if he's being sarcastic here or, or if he's only looking for an, an excuse why in his mind, the Jews were chosen for this for this purpose. In, in truth, there were much, much there were lines of kings of early Adamic nations that were much greater than, than the kings of Israel at one time, and Yahweh said He chose Israel because they were the least of people, not because they were the greatest of people. So Luther's argument it is non-biblical and it's sophistic once again. From any angle, he's looking for excuses as to why, in, in his mind, the Jews were chosen when actually none of these people were Jews at all. I see his tone, though, as very cynical. Well, well it, it seems cynical, but if it's, if it's cynical, I don't really see the point behind it. Well, I, I detect a lot of sarcasm, and, and basically, he's taking a jab at them. He's saying that they're talking up their own ancestors, but these are our ancestors. He's talking about the patriarchs and the prophets. Right. You want me to read the next paragraph? All right, if you'd like. What we have already stated, how the Jews, with few exceptions, viewed such promises and prophets. They were never able to tolerate a prophet and always persecuted God's word and declined to give the ear to God. That is the complaint and the lament of all the prophets. As did their fathers, so they still do today. Nor will they ever mend their ways. If Isaiah, Jeremiah, or other prophets went among them today and proclaimed what they proclaimed in their day, or declared that the Jews' present circumcision and hope for the Messiah are futile, 
they would again have to dye their hands as happened then. Let him who was endowed with reason to say nothing of Christian understanding note how arbitrarily, arbitrarily they pervert and twist the prophet's books with their confounded glosses in violation of their own conscience, on which we can perhaps say more later. For now that they can no longer stone or kill the prophets physically or personally, they torment them spiritually, mutilate, strangle, and maltreat their beautiful verses, so that the human heart is vexed and pained. For this forces us to see how, because of God's wrath, they are wholly delivered into the devil's hands. In brief, they are a prophet-murdering people, since they can no longer murder the living ones, they must murder and torment the ones that are dead. And, and I have to say that, that it's true that the ancestors of today's Jews murdered the prophets. However, the ancestors of today's Jews were not the Israelites. Christ said it was Jerusalem, not Israel. He said it was Jerusalem that murdered the prophets. The Jews, the people we know as Jews, are the Canaanites and Edomites who had infiltrated ancient Israel, and Christ attests to that. Well, it's attested to in Jeremiah chapter 2, chapter 24. It's attested to in Ezekiel chapter 16. Christ attests to it in Luke chapter 11 and in John chapter 8. They may have been in Judea. They may have had control of Jerusalem, they may have been responsible for the blood of all the prophets from Cain to Zechariah, but they weren't of his father. They were of the devil who was a murderer from the beginning. They had to be the children of Cain. They could not have been the children of Seth. Once it's understood that they're Canaanites and Edomites, it's right in Romans chapter 9 in black and white. It's in other places in the New Testament as well. Once that's understood, once we compare the New Testament to the historical record, records that we have, it's easy to see that these people aren't Israel. Martin Luther was absolutely blind in that respect. Do you have any comments? Well, I, I think like you said earlier, Luther just wasn't meant to understand. There seems to have been a timetable for the revelation of certain things that, as Christ said, were kept secret from the foundation of the world, and that many prophets and spiritual men had sought to see certain things and to hear certain things and had not seen them and had not heard them. Right, very so good. Those who are picking up on those things, it then should be recognized as a blessing. Absolutely. Well, that, that's why we have to do this comparison. This comparison to what Martin Luther understood to what we think that we understand. We have to make that comparison and produce the scriptures that support our argument as compared to Luther's. And that's exactly why. You want to read the next section? The um the blue block. Oh, Subsequently. No. Okay. 
Subsequently, after they scourged, crucified, spat upon, blasphemed, and cursed God and his word, as Isaiah 8 prophecies, they pretentiously trot out their circumcision and other vain, blasphemous, invented, and meaningless works. They presume to be God's only people to condemn all the world, and they expect that their arrogance and boasting will please God, that he should repay them with a Messiah of their own choosing and prescription, Therefore, dear Christian, be on your guard against such accursed, incorrigible people from whom you can learn no more than to give God and his word the lie, to blaspheme, to pervert, to murder prophets, and haughtily and proudly to despise all people on earth. Now, assuming Luther had read some of the Talmud, wouldn't he understand, though, that they're not looking for a Messiah of their own choosing and prescription? They consider themselves, they consider their race to be a collective Messiah. They're their own Messiah. Yeah, you know, it's apparent. I'm going to um, mention it again later in the notes, in, in the notes of a few pages from now in this presentation. I forget exactly where it is. But, but in the first segment of, of our presentation of Luther, he, he mentioned the, the names of two men that were writers of Christian commentaries on the Bible and both men were conversal Jews. And Luther held them in very high esteem. It seems to me that people like that, those men and others possibly, and we'll see in, in this paper whether he mentions more. I haven't read the paper that far ahead. It, it's a pretty long paper, right? It's 13 parts. Well, well those men and possibly others, had a profound impact on Luther's thinking, and their thinking is obviously Talmudic. They're perverters of Scripture. The, the, um, as for Isaiah, Isaiah prophecies that the children of Israel had done many things. But that never, dis that, that never disqualifies the children of Israel from the inheritance. There's nowhere in the prophet Isaiah that you can say, look, Israel was disqualified from the promises in Christ and, and from their status as the chosen people of God because they were bad. That's, the truth is just the opposite, that in spite of how bad Israel was, that they would be forgiven and that they would be brought to obedience. Over and over again in the later chapters of Isaiah, Yahweh appeals to Israel through Isaiah. I am your redeemer. I am your savior. Besides me, there is, that there is no other. I will redeem you. I will save you. I will cleanse you of all your sins. All the seed of Israel shall be saved. Over and over again, in Isaiah. So there, there, he could use Isaiah 8 to point out some of the bad behavior of the children of Israel, but Isaiah never disqualifies them of, of their, their blessings and their status as God's people. Luther would like to disqualify the Jews and use the Bible to do so, first because he has to squeeze himself in as a so-called Gentile into this picture, and secondly, because he understands that these people in his time that he calls Jews 
are so inherently evil that they can't possibly be God's people. He understands that. That's to his credit. That's the value of Martin Luther, that he really did think these were God's people, but he knew that they were evil bastards that could never be redeemed or, 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 or cleaned up. Not possible. He understood that. Israel was born from the beginning. I'm sorry, did you say something? No, I was just saying, um, do you want me to um, finish with Luther, or are you? Well, well I, I don't know if you're following along. And Israel was warned from the beginning that if they did not eliminate the Canaanites from among them, that they would indeed be led to do such things. They would indeed be wicked. After Isaiah gave such utterances, the children of Israel were deported by the Assyrians. The, the Israelites that Isaiah had in mind were being deported by the Assyrians. The people of Canaan, who later remained, took over Judea. And it is they who are known as the Jews. Not understanding that history, Martin Luther could easily accuse the wrong parties of, of, of the... the, the um, the, the iniquity in Israel and, and uh, all of the, the, the horrible things that the Israelites learned. Martin Luther just totally ignored the, the, the Canaanite element. He was evidently totally unaware of it. I'm sorry, go ahead. Even if God would be willing to disregard all their other sins, which of course is impossible, he would not condone such ineffable although poor and wretched pride, for he is called a God of the humble, as Isaiah 66, 2 states, but this is the man to whom I will look, he that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I have said enough about the second false boast of the Jews, namely their false and futile circumcision, which did not avail them when they were taken to task by Moses and by Jeremiah because of their uncircumcised heart. How much less is it useful now? when it is nothing more than the devil's trickery with which he mocks and fools them, as he also does the Turks. For wherever God's word is no longer present, circumcision is null and void. Now, why does Luther and, and bring, why, why no bring the Turks? I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just wondering, why bring the Turks into this? It seems odd that Luther wants to mention the Turks. I think he mentions the Turks because they represented Islam in Europe. At Luther's time, so they were just you know rampaging their way through the um, the Balkans, and they were slowly encroaching until what 1682, and they were stopped just outside of Vienna. Right. When when actually when Luther was writing, I believe that the Turks and and the um the, the Viennese were were at war at sea in the Mediterranean, I, I believe, and, and that was in the mid 1500s that they and and right the Turks were in the Baltic. In, in the Balkans and, and trying to make their way into Europe in the mid-1500s. When was the, um, the Battle of Kosovo? Was that in the 1300s or the 1500s? I forget. The Battle of Kosovo, I think, was 1309. Now, the Battle of Lepanto, the naval battle, was 1500, although there were a series of naval battles. Right. And, and I'm sure Luther probably saw some of them in his lifetime. 1500 is, he's already born. That the um, <clears throat> the the Turks represent Islam, and and basically that that they're a 
a, a very real threat to Europe at Luther's time. So he's lumping them together with the Jews, which is fine. That's that's where the Jews belong, because the Jews are more closely related to the Turks than they are to the Israelites of the Old Testament. Luther, unfortunately, was unaware of that. What Luther says here, even if God would be willing to disregard all their other sins, which is, of course, impossible, you, you know, Luther misses the entire point of Scripture was that God would forgive all of the sins of the children of Israel. The children of Israel had to accept the gospel of Christ. And their sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's where, that was where I focused on, on Luther in my presentation last week, was that Luther did not address the Jews on scriptural ground. If he just simply said the Jews are evil because they did not accept Christ, they rejected Christ, so they're evil. That's scriptural ground. That's what the New Testament tells us to do very explicitly. Do not accept those people who do not accept Christ. 2 John, verses 9 to 11, if anyone comes to you and does not have the doctrine of Christ, do not even greet that man or accept him into your house. If Luther should have understood that the Jews were evil simply because they rejected Christ. Christ said, no one gets to the Father except through me. You have no legitimate religion. You have no piety in the eyes of God if you don't start by accepting Christ, period. That disqualifies the Jews above all things. The fact that they're bastards is even secondary to that. The devils know that there's one God. Yeah, you could accept Christ and be a bastard, and of course you'll still be rejected. Well, if all it requires is belief that Jesus is the Messiah, doesn't Satan believe that? Well, well, absolutely. But it was in, in the first century, the children of God were, the, the lines were drawn, and the children of God were made manifest by their acceptance of Christ. That's what the scripture says would happen. My sheep hear my voice. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. It's not that you don't believe me so you're not my sheep. You don't believe me in the first place because you're not my sheep, right. so you but, can't possibly believe me. The Judeos seem to think, if only you would believe me, you could become my sheep. But he said, because you are not my sheep, you do not believe me. Not, you, are, right. you do not believe me, therefore you are not my sheep. Right. The Judeos interpret that verse exactly backwards, exactly the opposite of what it's saying. Martin Luther, that's the first, the, the first judgment on the Jews is that their ancestors stayed Jews because they were the people that rejected Christ. The people that rejected Christ were not his sheep. Well, the people that rejected yeah. Christ, I, I'd say it's rather the people that Christ rejected. Well, well right, but it, it, that's not the way that, that God wanted it 
in in the um, in the first century, he wanted to make his children manifest because they would follow him. Right, but with the Jews, it wasn't a case that they rejected Christ. It was a case that Christ and God have rejected them and always rejected them. Well, well, right, but that, that's the point. The point is that there's no discrepancy between God's word and God's creation, that those who were bastards were going to reject him. They were destined to reject him. Those who were children were destined to accept him. That's what Paul's saying when he talks about predestiny in, in, in the epistle to the Romans. The children of God shouldn't, shouldn't and, and I talked about this last week also, the difference between salvation by race and salvation by the presumption of race. All of Israel will be saved. There should be no doubt about it whatsoever. However, even the children of Israel shouldn't assume that because they're Israelites that they're going to be saved and that they have no obligations. There's no salvation by the presumption of race. If you're Abraham's children, you'll do the works of Abraham. A shining city cannot be, cannot be hid. A light, um, what, what, a lantern when it's lit can't be placed under a couch. If you're a child of God, you're going to do the works that, 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 um, that, that show that you're a child of God. Do you want to continue with Luther? All right. In the third place, they are very conceited because God spoke with them and issued them the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. And as you pointed out, Luther accepts their claim, but Christ explicitly said that they are not his sheep. Right. Here, Why did Luther? accept his claim if Christ said that they're not his sheep. That, that's, you know, that's blatant blindness, and, and that, I believe, is a manifestation of the power of the Word of God, that Yahweh God decreed this blindness, and, and Luther displays it. He's an intelligent man. He could have a lot of insight, but he was totally blind to this identity of the Jews in spite of Scripture. Well, I wonder, did Luther just not really give a thorough reading to the Old Testament? Did he never study the Talmud? Um, what's going on here? I believe, I believe that most of his um, influence was through, through the Catholic teachings. I'm not fully apprised of what all of the Roman Catholic Church taught at the time to, to its priests, right? He was a Catholic priest. But that's one indication that he didn't have much of a Bible education. But he was profoundly influenced by these converso Jews and their commentaries. It, it's very clear, and and he even states that. But even it's in plain, you know, language here. John ten twenty six in the Luther Bible. Aber ihr glaubt nicht, denn ihr seid nicht von meinen Schafen. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Right. That, that should be enough to make a man think. I, I don't know. You know, I, I came in, into, um, I, I was raised a Catholic, and I was an apostate by the time I was 12 and stopped going to church. And, and um, 
I got some stories about that too. Well, well, yeah, you know, I I never bothered with Christianity or the Bible because of the, the harrowing experience I had as a young Catholic. Well, well, um, I never despised God. I never despised the Bible. I just left it alone. I was an apostate until I was 36, and Christian identity found me. I read a few booklets, and then I read the Bible. But I read the Bible from a, a position that had the presumption that we, that, that the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, and related people were the children of God and the Israel of Old Testament Scripture. So my eyes were open before I read the Bible. So I had advantages in that I didn't have any baggage, denominational baggage, and I already had a certain element of awakening that I could see those things were plain as day to me the first time I read Scripture. They were plain as day because I had been shown those things before I read Scripture. So I have an advantage that clearly Luther didn't have or, or that mainstream Judeo-Christians don't have when they read the Bible and their minds are full of all the Judeo-Christian presumptions. So I can't say that I would have recognized that if I didn't know anything about identity before I read the Bible. I can't make that, that, that point. I, I can't brag about that. It's right there in front of our faces. Once we hear the truth and see that passage, we should readily be willing to accept it. That what we would be at fault if we did not do that, because then we're denying the plain word of Scripture. But I don't know if, you know, we, we can see it so plainly that we're like, how didn't he see it? Why didn't that make him go back and think about that and examine those Scriptures? We think it should have. Of course it should have. But men have failed to do that from the dawn of time. We failed. I guess we're just not learning our lessons. We right, we never learn our lessons, and and we what we what we all have a political agenda, or, or we think that everything that we learned was right, and 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 we're not going to accept anything that's contrary to it. it, it and and that's exemplary of Judeo Christians today. Yeah, you can take a Baptist and show him this John ten twenty six a hundred times, a hundred times still say, but the Jews are God's chosen people. Because they were told that in Sunday school. Right. Right. Absolutely. And in church every Sunday. And it don't matter how many times you want to spell out each word of John ten twenty six, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. It don't matter how many times you want to hit them with, with that. There's a switch up there in, in, in heaven, and God hits it, and suddenly people get it. That, that's right. I believe that. You, you, that you can read it in whatever one. language. I'm sorry. I was just saying you can read it in whatever language you want. English, German, the concept is the same. They're not his sheep. Right. But people don't get it until that mystical switch is hit. That, that's the only thing that explains why so many otherwise intelligent people just can't see 
no matter how many times you beat them over the head with it and deny the plain word of Scripture in favor of their denominational dogma. Do you want to continue? Here we arrive at the right spot. Here God really has to let himself be tortured. Here he must listen as they tire him with their songs and praises because he hallowed them with his holy law, set them apart from other nations, and led them out of Egypt. Here we poor goyim are really despised and mere ciphers compared to the holy, chosen, noble, and highly exalted people which is in possession of God's word. Yeah, you know, right. I got a couple of notes. Paul was not accounting the Edomites in Judea with Romans 3, 2. I believe that's what um, Luther is making a reference to here. In Romans 3, 2, Paul asks, what advantage has the Judean, not the Jew, the Judean? At that time, there were still a lot of Israelite Judeans who possibly hadn't heard Christ at all, never saw him, never had a chance to accept the gospel. They hear rumors that go through the city or through the streets that there were, all, you know, there were two million people in Judea and probably the population doubled at the time of the feasts when Christ was in Jerusalem. I'm sure without any of the electronic and print media that we have today, a lot of those four million people never really had a chance to hear Christ during the feasts in Jerusalem. Four million people. What are your chances of finding me at Times Square on New Year's Eve? What are your chances of, of, of seeing me if we were both there randomly at, at some point? None. It's zilch. Nil. So, so basically Paul is saying that what advantage has the Judean, the people of Judea, not necessarily the Edomites. Paul didn't care about the Edomites. He explained that in Romans chapter 9. What advantage has the Judean that unto them were left the oracles of God? So the Judeans, ju just like um, the, the, I think it was Peter said in the book of Acts, that Moses is still read in the, the assembly halls every Sabbath. And anybody can go listen to the law if they so choose. So that, that's basically what Paul's describing. But the Edomite Jews that rejected Christ, you know, the word of God wasn't left to them. They simply absconded it and, and used it as a front to hide behind so that they could maintain a false identity. It's that simple. They didn't do it consciously. It just happened that way. You don't think they consciously usurped our identity? Well, well, you know, they willingly be they willingly became converts in the second century BC, but six generations later, those people couldn't have been really conscious about that. Not not to the extent that that um, we might like to think. I'll bet a lot of them weren't conscious of it at all because to them, the distinctions meant nothing once they had the label and the circumcision. To them, when you, when you 
take a Jew and, and let him into America, the Jew's going to call himself an American and consider himself your equal. It, it, the label means nothing to the Jew. To you, being an American might have a whole cultural and, and historical sig and significance. To the Jew, it means nothing. He, he just blends in wherever he goes. He does it naturally. They don't do it purposely. They do it naturally. There's a difference. It's like the pig leaves a mess wherever he goes. Do you think that the pig is conscious about it? No, the pig doesn't recognize the mess that he leaves. It's just natural for the pig to leave a mess. I don't believe that most of the Edomites were conscious about it. The apostles couldn't tell apart a, 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 an Israelite and an Edomite. Neither could Josephus. Josephus, he knew that Herod was an Edomite. He knew that Herod did many bad things, but he still thought he was a good king. He still wrote kindly about him. He still praised him on many occasions. He knew he was an Edomite. Christ, the, the apostles marveled at Christ. They, they marveled at Christ because he knew what was in man. Nobody had to testify to him concerning any man. He knew who was good, who was evil. He could tell the wheat from the tares apart. The apostles couldn't do it. Josephus couldn't do it. The Canaanites at this time in the first century were a lot wider than most Jews are today, for certain. Because of all the mixing that had gone on for 1,500 years of Old Testament history. The parable, the parable of the wheat and tares was just as valid then as, as it is now. Right. Let me continue. They state, as I myself heard, indeed, what do you have to say to this, that God himself spoke with us on Mount Sinai and that he did this with no other people? We have nothing with which to refute that for we cannot deny them this glory. The book of Moses, the books of Moses are already are ready to give proof of it, and David too testifies to it, saying in Psalm one forty seven nineteen, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation, they do not know his ordinances, and in Psalm one oh three seven he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Well, well, yes, we can deny them the glory of being Sinai once we realize that the Jews are not Israel. Luther couldn't because he didn't make that realization. You know, Paul told the Dorian Greeks of Corinth that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Dorian Greeks were Israel. The Edomite Jews were not Israel. The Psalms apply to the Dorian Greeks. They don't apply to the Edomites. So we can, we, we can deny them that glory. Luther took it for granted that they were telling the truth. I, I hate to belabor that, but, but Luther is belaboring it. So I have to address it as, as often as it comes up, at least nearly as often. 
Well, Luther makes some very basic mistakes, but how many of our people have made at least those basic mistakes, if not worse mistakes? And that's why we have to walk through this to give people an opportunity to cease from those mistakes, the people that hear this anyway. And, 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 and simply, the, the, the whole point of this, the, the whole point of this in, in addressing Luther is basically to, to demonstrate that it's easier. It's easier and it's much more certain to address the Jews and their claims and their lies on scriptural grounds. It would have been a lot easier for Luther to quote John 10:26 and say, the Jews are not his sheep, they can't be his people. Even if he didn't know how, he should believe Christ. Even if you don't understand why you should believe Christ, you should believe Christ. Because God is the authority, and the word of God cannot fail. Understanding that as a Christian, if you understand that, then just believe Christ. The Jews, you may not know how they're not his people, and, and, and we in Christian identity, in, in the two-seed line variety anyway, because a lot of um, marginal identity Christians don't, but we understand how, exactly how, the Jews are not the people of God. Even if you don't understand how, believe Christ. The Jews are not his sheep, period. That, that's the end of the argument. He's the authority. If you don't believe the authority, you're not a Christian. You're a Jew. If you're not a Christian, to John 9, 11, 9 through 11, we shouldn't accept the testimony or the persons of people who do not believe Christ. The, the ultimate defense against the Jews is very, very basic and very, very simple. That, that's the point. We don't need all these sophistic arguments. Luther was, was um, relying on his own sophistic arguments. Because he was naive in that one area. Well, well evidently, and, and it's a shame. But that's what happens when you take the lies of the Jew for granted. You're blind. Or we could say Luther wasn't meant to understand. But she accepted the lie of the serpent, right? I'm sorry, I talked with you. I was just saying we could reasonably say that Luther just wasn't meant to understand. Right. Well, well, you know, most Judeo-Christians today are, are, are worse off than Luther. Oh, yeah. Most Judeo-Christians today are worse off than Luther. At least Luther understood that these Jews were evil bastards and that they were unreformable. If Judeo-Christians today were at Luther's level, if the Lutheran church would follow Luther... They'd be a hell of a lot better off with all of Luther's faults. It's our point to show that those faults are, are, are scriptural, that we have better arguments from Scripture, that Scripture is a better authority than the sophistics of men.
Are you still with me? Yeah. Yeah, you want me to read the next section? All right. They relay that the chiefs of the people wore wreaths at Mount Sinai at that time as a symbol. And, and that I, I've never seen that in Scripture. I'm not going to say that's not in Scripture. I, I, I certainly don't remember it from Scripture. <laughs> that might be from the Talmud. The chiefs of the people wore wreaths at Mount Sinai at that time as a symbol that they had contracted a marriage with God through the law, that they had become his bride, and that the two had wedded one another. Later we read in all the prophets how God appears and talks with the children of Israel as a husband with his wife. Now, now here Martin Luther makes a serious mistake where he says, from this also sprang the peculiar worship of Baal, for Baal denotes a man of the house or a master of the house. Beulah denotes a housewife. The latter also has taken a German form, as when we say, my dear Bula, or sweetheart, and I must have a Bula. Formerly, this was an inoffensive term designating a young lass. It was said that a young man courted Bulta, a young girl with a view to marriage. Now the word has assumed a different connotation. And I think Luther really jumped off the wall there. There is no doubt that first that elements of the German language came from Hebrew because the Germans themselves are of Israel and not the Jews. However, Baal worship is first mentioned in Scripture in Numbers chapter 22. In a context which shows that the other tribes had practiced it before the Israelite conquest of Canaan. Baal worship is first encountered in the Bible with Baal Peor and the worship, the pagan fertility rites, the Moabites in Numbers chapter 22. So Baal worship could not have come from Mount Sinai. Luther makes a huge mistake there. Baal worship represents ancient pagan fertility cults. It's unrelated to Mount Sinai, and it predates the events of Mount Sinai. And the Bible proves that. Luther jumped off the bridge on that one. The, the, um, the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel is very, very clear throughout Scripture. We find it in Isaiah. We find it in Hosea. We find it in Jeremiah. We find it in the letters of Paul. And we'll discuss that a little more tonight as we proceed. You want to read the next section? Now we challenge you, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets, and whoever will, to come and to be bold enough to say that such a noble nation with whom God himself converses and with whom he himself enters into marriage through the law and to whom he joins himself as to a bride is not God's people. Anyone doing that, I know, would make himself ridiculous and come to grief. In default of any weapons, they would tear and bite him to pieces with their teeth for trying to dispossess them of such glory, praise, and honor. One can neither express nor understand the obstinate, unbridled, incorrigible arrogance of this people springing from this advantage, that God himself spoke to them. No prophet 
has ever been able to raise his voice in protest or stand up against them, not even Moses. For in Numbers 16, Korah arose and asserted that they were all holy people of God and asked why Moses alone should rule and teach. Since that time, the majority of them have been genuine Korahites. There have been very few true Israelites. For just as Korah persecuted Moses, they have never subsequently left a prophet alive or unpersecuted, much less have they obeyed him. Well, well here again, Luther is disputing the idea that the Jews could be the people of God. And, and that's fine. He should have stopped there. At the same time, he's upholding the idea that the Jews were Israel. And because he does that, he's found disputing against Scripture. He's found in, in conflict with himself. Because the false premise, by necessity, leads to a multitude of lies. It's necessary. When, when you have a false premise, when you start out with the wrong idea, you're, you're going to corrupt the scripture all the way through to support your wrong idea. There's no doubt that the children of Israel were married to Yahweh God, that Yahweh divorced the children of Israel. It's explicit in the prophets, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, and that Yahweh promised to betroth the same children of Israel to him once again, and that is also explicit. It's Hosea chapter 2. We're going to quote shortly in this presentation. Continue with Luther? Yes, if you wish. So it became apparent that they were a defiled bride, yes, an incorrigible whore, and an evil slut with whom God ever had to wrangle, scuffle, and fight. If he chastised and struck them with his word through the prophets, they contradicted him, killed his prophets, or like a mad dog, bit the stick with which they were struck. Thus Psalm 95.10 declares, For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in heart, and they do not regard my ways. And Moses himself says in Deuteronomy 31.27, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, while I am yet alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? And Isaiah 48.4, Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass, and so on. Anyone who is interested may read more of this. The Jews are well aware that the prophets upbraided the children of Israel from beginning to end, as a disobedient, evil people, and as the vilest whore, although they boasted so much of the law of Moses, or circumcision, and of their ancestry. Okay, well, the Jews of Luther's time are making those boasts, and Luther is taking for granted that because they have that, that, that law, or they pretend to that law, and they have that circumcision, and they claim that ancestry, that they are Israel, and the simple fact is that they are not his sheep, right? The Revelation portrays Israel first in Revelation chapter 12 as a woman clothed with the sun. Then that woman flees off to the wilderness. And five chapters later in Revelation chapter 17, an angel comes and takes John out to the wilderness to see a woman 
And instead of this woman clothed with the sun, he sees a whore attached to a beast. Both of these, the woman that bears the Christ child in Revelation 12, and the whore in Revelation 17, joined to the beast. Both of them represent the children of Israel. Yes, Israel is a whore. The nation, as the wife of God, is also Israel. But none of them are Jews. In the prophets, in Hosea, the children of Israel were portrayed as the wife of God. Yahweh said he would betroth them to him again. But in Hosea, the children of Israel and the children of Judah were also portrayed as whores. When we're obedient to our God, we're his wife. When we're disobedient, we're whores. That's just the way it is. You would consider that of your, of your wife if she went running around to the bars at night when you weren't home, when you were working, your wife's in the bar, you'll say, oh, that whore. Well, well that's what God thinks about us. We're disobedient, and he calls us the whore. That doesn't mean that the promises are null and void. In fact, Yahweh promised that he was never going to part with the children of Israel. Paul said to the Corinthians, I believe this is um, 2 Corinthians, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should also be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3. 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 2, well, that is describing the wife, the woman that bears the Christ child in Revelation chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 11, 3. That's describing the whore, the Revelation 17 woman that joined herself to the beast because that's exactly what happened as the Revelation said would happen. Paul knew Paul knew that these children of Israel, that these Corinthians he was writing to, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he knew that they were part of the dispersions of Israel. He's saying that he presented them as a chaste virgin, like a bride to a husband, a chaste virgin to Christ. He espoused them to one husband. He's saying that because he knows that they are fulfilling or are a part of that fulfillment of the promise in Hosea chapter 2, that Yahweh, in spite of his having put away the children of Israel, would betroth the children of Israel once again. Luther didn't, he, he's actually being sarcastic over the, the, the representation of, of Israel as the bride of Yahweh, Luther's being sarcastic because he thinks that it refers to the Jews. And, and we would probably be pretty cynical about that ourselves if we thought that it were true. 
looking at those at those evil bastards, how could they possibly be the bride of Christ? Yeah, you know, Luther should have understood that the children of Israel that accepted the word of Christ, and, and that's the message in the gospel, that they were the bridesmaids and, and, and not that these Jews who rejected him, who were not his sheep. It boils down to the same simple scriptures time and again. I know it might be sounding laborious, but the, the answers are simple. The answers to the Jews are simple, and if Christians believed God, they would understand who Israel was and who the Jews were. All we have to do is believe Christ. You know, a point I made last week was where Christ said that he said to his opponents that if they were Abraham's children, that they would do the works of Abraham. What are the works of Abraham? Well, you know, I was um, asking someone this earlier. Can you imagine if Moses, Abraham, if these people were Jews as we understand them today, if Abraham was a Jew, he wouldn't have been putting Isaac on the altar to prepare the sacrifice. I mean, he'd have been undressing Isaac, preparing to sodomize and molest him. Right. If, the Jews were, if the Jews were Israel, then the land of Canaan would have been invaded with briefcases, right, instead of swords. Abraham, the works of Abraham are only stated in this manner. Abraham believed God. That's it. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. All we had to do is believe God. All we had to do is read the New Testament, believe the words of Christ. We'll never make the mistake, if we believe what he says, we'll never make the mistake of believing that the Jews are God's chosen people because they rejected Christ. For that simple reason, you are not my sheep. He tells us why. They're not his people. They weren't Israel. Now, we should read that and, and wonder about that and inquire and pursue. Seek and you shall find. And we would find Romans chapter 9 and Ezekiel 34, 35, 36 and the other scriptures, that, that the good and bad figs in Jeremiah. And perhaps read Josephus and put it together. There's a reason why we have these witnesses available to us. There's a reason why the providence of God survived certain writings to us. It's not a mistake that we can locate these things, read them, and know that God is true. But it might be objected, back to Martin Luther, surely, this is said about the wicked Jews, not about the pious ones as they are today. I don't know where the hell Martin Luther met pious Jews. Well and good, for the present, I will be content if they put confess, as they must confess, that the wicked Jews cannot be God's people and that their lineage, circumcision, and law of Moses cannot help them. It, it, Luther is discounting mercy and grace and, and, and repentance, right? Well, Bill, I wonder, when, when he says a pious Jew, is he making the sort of distinction people make today? Oh, well, that man's Jewish, but he, he's, he's not observing, he's not practicing. That'd be like saying, well, I, that, I, that guy is of Satan, but he's not a practicing Satanist. I'm certain that in Martin Luther's time, you probably had your synagogue-going Jews who, who had 
put on this pretense of piety that the same Jews that Christ um, basically upbraided back in Matthew 23 when he called them hypocrites time and again. And then you probably had your Jews, and, and you certainly did, who were the, the usurers, the whoremasters, the, the, the gambling house operators, the, the, the um, bootleggers, the, 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 what, what, the loan sharks, but whatever you want to imagine, but whatever evil the Jews have, have perpetrated throughout our societies over and over and over again, because 90% of the pornographers, 90% of the users and loan sharks, 90% of, of, of the gambling house owners, at least 90% are all Jews, even today. So, you know, I'm sure that Luther recognized both groups, but I'm sure that Luther probably considered them disparate, as he explains here. He probably did make a distinction between them, not understanding that it's those Talmudic bastards in the synagogues who were the, the, the criminals ten times more than the pornographers and, and, and the Jews who are wicked right in front of your face. He, he doesn't seem to have understood that. He obviously did see that Jews could repent and, and believed that they could repent and turn to Christ because these certain converso Jews who wrote biblical commentaries made a big impact on his thinking, and, and, and there's no doubt. That's why he mentioned them. So, so Luther had some problems, and the, the way I understand his life, <clears throat> he also made a transformation and, and, and came to an awakening concerning the Jews in midlife. And, and his awakening is why he wrote this paper on the Jews and their lives. He, he at once was, um, what, what was very favorable and accepting to the Jews until they burned him a few times. And, and we'll, we may get into that before the end of this paper and into a little more of the history of his life and the details. It's just not time to do that yet. Well, where did I leave off? When, why then, do they all, the most wicked as well as the pious, boast of circumcision, lineage, and law? The worse a Jew is, the more arrogant he is, solely because he is a Jew. That is, a person descended from Abraham's seed, here we go again, circumcised and under the law of Moses, David and other pious Jews were not as conceited as the present-day incorrigible Jews. However wicked they may be, they presume to be the noblest lords over against us Gentiles, just by virtue of their lineage and law. Yet the law rebukes them as the vilest whores and rogues under the sun. Well, well yes, it does, but they're not Israel. Yeah, yes, they're devils, but they're not Israel. They're not really whores because that that they they, they they do belong to the devil, so they can't sell themselves freely. They certainly are history's whore masters. Do you have any comments? Well, I think Luther's getting you know he's really hitting them hard, and as you said. It didn't quite start occurring until they burned him a few times, right? So originally he tried to embrace them and minister to them, and he got burned doing it. 
Well, well, right. He had some bad experiences, and and because of those bad experiences, he recognized the the Jewish character for what it was. Right. So but he uh, had experiences. At least he learned his lesson. Most Judeo Christians have never been burned by a New York lawyer. That they've never gone to a to, to a shop on Canal Street and and got screwed out of their twenty or thirty dollars for the broken trinkets they bought. It, it's it, it's um I, I don't know it, it's my my life is replete with examples that they they, they because I grew up in, in in the New York City area right because I grew up in North Jersey and and spent a lot of time in downtown Manhattan when I was a kid I I, I remember how they acted what they did how they burned people the, the shops the stores that the old junk stores that used to line certain neighborhoods in New York it, it's um. It, it, it's their character that Luther recognized as bad, but he needed experience with them in order to realize that. Judeo-Christians today, 99% of Judeo-Christians have, have never really spent any time among Jews to know what they're like. Well, that's unfortunate, then. It's the same thing with Negroes. Ninety percent of Americans have never really had considerable experience with Negroes to understand that the, the, the Negro really cannot be our peer in a civil society. It's not possible. You, you, can't, you can't take the jungle out of the Negro. That's just the way it is. So wherever he goes, the result is going to be Africa. It's natural to him. Is that the Negro's fault? Probably not. The, pro the fault lies with us for imagining that we can defy nature. That's where the fault lies. Would you like to read the next paragraph? We're on, um, furthermore, that one? Yes. Furthermore, if they are pious Jews and not the whoring people, as the prophets call them, how does it happen that their piety is so concealed that God himself is not aware of it, and they are not aware of it either? For they have, as we said, prayed, cried, and suffered almost 1,500 years already, and yet God refuses to listen to them. We know from Scripture that God will hear the prayers or sign of the righteous. As the Psalter says in Psalm 145:19. He fulfills the desire of all who fear him. He also hears their cry. In Psalm 34:17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. As he promised in Psalm 50:15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. The same is found in many more verses of the scripture. If it were not for these, who would or could pray? In brief, he says in the first commandment that he will be their God. Then, how do you explain that he will not listen to these Jews? They must assuredly be the base, whoring people, that is, no people of God, and their boast of lineage, circumcision, and law must be accounted as filth. If there were a single pious Jew among them who observed these, he would have to be heard, for God cannot let his saints pray in vain, as Scripture demonstrates by many examples. This is conclusive evidence that they cannot be pious Jews, but must be the multitude of the whoring and murderous people. 
Luther here talks in terms of Jewish suffering from the diaspora which occurred after the temple was destroyed. But this was not the dispersion of Israel. These are not the people that Isaiah and Hosea were talking about. These are not the people that the prophets were chastising. The diaspora, the dispersion of Israel happened 800 years before the temple was destroyed. The people who were dispersed after 70 AD were the enemies of God and not his people. You are not my sheep. The words of Jeremiah concerning the evil figs in Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 8 and 9. Jeremiah saw two baskets of figs in Jerusalem, good figs, which would be built and which would never fail, and evil figs. So evil they could not be eaten. And Jeremiah says from verse 8, and as, well, Yahweh says to Jeremiah in verse 8, and as the evil figs which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Yahweh, for I will give, he's going to give these wicked kings of Judah over to the evil figs, right? The wicked kings of Judah are not evil figs. They're being given to the evil figs. There's a difference. So I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth, for they hurt, to be reproached in a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall dr drive them. They embraced mixed with the evil figs, and that was a judgment from God. And I will send a sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and their fathers. So these wicked, these disobedient Judeans were given over to the evil figs so that they could be destroyed and chastised and punished. The words of Christ concerning the Judeans who rejected him, Luke chapter 21. For these be the days of vengeance, that all the things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations until the times of the nations be fulfilled. Yahweh God chastises his people and corrects them in their punishment. However, he takes vengeance upon his enemies. These are two threads throughout the law and the prophets and throughout the New Testament as well, not properly distinguishing between God's people and God's enemies. One, like Luther, is easily led to universalism and, and to a belief that a man's works save him, which even though Luther rejected the notion of salvation by works, if you're a universalist or if you believe in anything other than racial salvation, you're basically professing a belief in salvation by works. So Luther had a cognitive disconnect in that area. But these people that were di dispersed in 70 AD, well, after 70 AD, they're God's enemies. They're not God's people. They are the wicked figs, and the people of Judah 
who were surrendered to the wicked figs. They're not God's people, although some of them were race mixed and ended up basically, from a racial viewpoint, joining the side of the enemy because they rebelled from God. However, they're the Edomites and Canaanites of the Old and New Testaments that were converted in the second century AD, and, and some of them had infiltrated long before that. There were Kenites in Jerusalem, and, and Canaanites mingled with the people of Jerusalem long before the second century AD. And, and those are the bad figs. So, so that their dispersion was in 70 AD and thereafter. But they're God's enemies. They're not God's people. And that's very clear in Scripture. That's very clear in Luke chapter 21. Luther just took it for granted that the, the, the Jews were Israel and they were dispersed at 70 AD when they lost their temple. That's not what Scripture says. But that's what they've claimed. And Luther's taking that's them at their the word. Claim. Yes, that's what the Jews claim, and Luther took them at their word. He should have read the Scripture. It wasn't up. It, it wasn't given to Luther what to, to wonder about what happened to all those people, to the greatest part of Israel and Judah that were taken away by the Assyrians. Not even the people that went to Babylon, which were only basically the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who, who Sennacherib failed to conquer. About. I think it was about 690 B.C. I might be off by as many as five years. I think it was 690 B.C. or thereabouts that Sennacherib was defeated by Yahweh at the walls of Jerusalem. Those people with King Hezekiah, those became the, the remnant of Judah that spread out into the suburbs once again and were then conquered by the Babylonians a little over 100 years later. And those people were taken to Babylon. Now, those people, from those people, we have 42,000 returnees. So it wasn't, obviously, was not given to Luther to wonder about what happened to the vast majority of the children of Israel who were dispersed by God before 580 B.C. When Jerusalem was finally destroyed, I think, 585, 584. So, so Luther just takes it for granted that the people of Israel are dispersed in 70 AD and, there, and thereafter, when they're really just a portion of the descendants of about 42,000 people that returned from Babylon. That's all. And they're not all the descendants, just a portion. That's all they are. So, so that's that, that's a um, w whether Luther had that knowledge available to him is another story. You, you know, William Whiston did the most famous translation of Josephus's works in the 17th century, or possibly the 18th century. No, I'm wrong. It's the 17th century. William Whiston did that translation, the second half. And 
Luther being in the middle of the 16th century, I don't know if he should have been able to read Greek, but I don't know if he had the ability and the opportunity to read Josephus. That may have um, woken him up to a few things, but obviously it wasn't his to do. It was not given to him to do because that blindness was not supposed to be lifted yet. It's still, even though we bore this Christian identity message for, for in, in one form or another for, for over 100 years now, it's still not given to most of our people to be awakened. They're still blind. 99% of whites are still blind. Absolutely. They still think that Jews are God's people and that niggers can be baptized. Well, not only that, but a lot of the churches, they are spearheading the charge to bring these aliens into our society. You know, right now, as we speak, there are half a million so-called refugees from Rwanda in the eastern portion of the former Belgian Congo. They are waiting to come to the U.S. They anticipate bringing them here over the next five years. They're arranging basically air travel, though, and they say the logistics associated with moving half a million people from East Africa in refugee camps to the United States is difficult. And they're going to settle them all across the Northeast and the Midwest and the Northwest. And obviously, yeah, you know, the, the, this is the majesty of the Word of God, right? Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 1 and 2, right? Therefore, thou son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God, behold, I am against thee, O God, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, I'm not the first one that's done it. Others have done it also. I'm not going to take credit for it, even though I might be able to. Clifton may have done it before me. Gog. God, it, it can be demonstrated, and I did in Christrike in my Revelation chapter 16, 17, 18 presentation. God represents world Jewry. The, the eighth beast of the Revelation is world Jewry and, and this international corporatism that we see. Well, well verse 2 says, and I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee and will cause thee to come up from the north parts. Well, what does that say? Will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. What does that say? I'll tell you what that says. That these hordes of Gog and Magog, five-sixths of them are going to end up in Christian nations. Five-sixths of these beasts, because only the sixth part is going to be left behind. If there's a million niggers in Kenya, five, six of them, that, that's about what, 83% are going to end up in white lands. That's what the scripture says. Right, and you know, and they, um, they conducted a study across India. They said that 50% of all people in India said they would move to the United States that same day, if they could physically do so. Absolutely. As I, as I see it, there is no enclave that will be safe. They're going to flood and inundate the entire nation, and no matter where no, you go, they will be there. No safe haven. We're going to have no safe haven. 
all these people that think that they're going to escape to some white neighborhood in, in, in some, I mean, there, there are going to be some regions that might have more white people than others. I wouldn't want to be caught in Chicago or in St. Louis or in New York City when the proverbial poop hits the fan. But I, I, you're not going to go anywhere and be free of these beasts. Right, so you may think Nantucket Island will be fine, but, you know, who's to say it's going to be? Oh, they'll build some Section 8 housing there, too, before it's over, I'm sure. Well, it's clear to me our nation is cursed. Of course we're cursed. We're, 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 we are under the curses of disobedience. All of Christendom. Not only our nation, every white nation is under the curses of disobedience because we have abandoned our God and we have embraced these, these Jew bastards that are really God's enemies. They are really satanic. They are a satanic entity and they have been for, for 7,500 years, if we want to use the Septuagint chronology. Since we were put here, they've been adversarial to us. Since Adam was created. So it, it's, it's because we don't know history, we should get a pass. But we're not going to get a pass. There's no pass in the book of Revelation. We're going to have pain and suffering. We're going to have to deal with this evil world system. But, and this is... Um, this might rifle some feathers. You know, Christ says that the return of the Son of Man, well, we're not going to be um, circling the wagons under siege. Christ says that when the Son of Man returns, it shall be, when he returns, it shall be as it was in the days of Noah. They will be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, well, we don't have a, a um, command to come out of Babylon until it falls. Our people, 90% of our people at least, are going to remain oblivious to the problem. They'll be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage as it was in the days of Noah. That's the word of Christ. I wouldn't... Um, pay too much attention to all these clowns out there trying to get you to buy their gold and sell you their doomsday scenarios because when the proverbial poop hits the fan, you're not going to know it was coming. So how do you know what to prepare for? We should be prepared spiritually. There's no doubt. We, if we're going to make ourselves um, vessels that that, that Christ could use if he so chose, that then we better be spiritually prepared for it. There's no doubt. Now, I'm not telling people not to buy guns and bullets and things like that. A man should be able to defend his own house, and there are going to be plenty of opportunities to do that in the years to come. But when, this, when it goes down, they're going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, as it was in the days of Noah. They're not going to know what's going to come down upon them.
those people that are called to arise and thresh, they're the ones that will be prepared. They're the ones that, that, that will know what's going on. They're the ones that will be able to hear that call. That's the way I see the scripture. I talked about it at length in my recent Micah presentation, actually the last two segments. The last three segments, I'm sorry, were all about that. Do you have any comments? On what you said about the um, calamities and catastrophes or on the, the reading? Either way. Well, it's clear we're in a cursed nation, but that doesn't mean we as individuals are operating under some sort of curse. So I think we can still be preserved and kept safe while the nation crumbles around us. Well, well Elijah thought he was alone, right? Elijah thought he was the only one left, and Yahweh told Elijah that he still had 7,000 men that had not bowed the knee to bow, right? So that basically addresses your concern. Okay, we should probably stop this here, and, and, and we're about halfway through part three of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, and we'll pick it up here next week. All right. Because I'm going to get back to the Two Seed Line series until I return from New York the first week of April. So, so the, the Two Seed Line series is probably going to be put on hold until mid-April. When we get back to it, the next segment of the Two Seed Line series will be about the other races in the Old Testament. All right. That sounds exciting. Thank you for joining me. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. I'll be here Friday. I'm thinking about starting the Book of Romans on Friday, but I'm going to leave it to be announced. I'll make up my mind by Monday morning. Praise Yahweh and good night. Thank you, everybody. And take care. Something different. I got a fill in to thank for this. <laughs>